Hello, everyone, and welcome to HR Works, the podcast for HR professionals. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to join us. I'm the host of HR Works, Jim Davis, and the editor of the HR Daily Advisor. This podcast aims to put valuable tools and knowledge into the hands and ears of you, the HR professional. Those tools will arm you with the best methods and strategies for attracting, motivating, and retaining top talent. HR often gets caught in the maelstrom of constant change. Sometimes that change happens in a strategic, organized way. Other times, organizations are subjected to that change by outside forces, like shifting markets, hiring crunches, and lightning-fast technical innovation. Knowing how to change and when is as difficult as it is important. Today's guest is here to help with this challenging issue. We are pleased to have Dave Ulrich with us today. He is the Rensis Lickert Professor at the Ross School of Business, University of Michigan, and a partner at the RBL Group, a consulting firm focused on helping organizations and leaders deliver value. He studies how organizations build capabilities of leadership, speed learning, accountability, and talent through leveraging human resources. He has helped generate award-winning databases that assess alignment between strategies, organizational capabilities, HR practices, competencies, and customer and investor results. Dave has published over 200 articles and book chapters and over 25 books. He edited Human Resource Management from 1990 to 1999, served on editorial boards of four journals on the board of directors for Herman Miller and board of trustees at Southern Virginia University and is a fellow in the National Academy of Human Resources. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Jim, that uh, introduction makes me tired, <laughs> uh, but what a, what a delight to be with you. Thank you for your time. <laughs> Absolutely. We're glad to have you. Um, organizations are sort of at a crossroads where traditional rigid methods of organizational structure are being challenged. Um, some organizations are trying to be more agile. That's the, uh, the buzzword that we're hearing a lot uh, by you know, moving away from verticals, breaking down hierarchies. Um, I understand that you have a, a approach that you call reinvention, and I was wondering if you could just tell me a little bit about that. Sure. The word that's been used in our field, and I didn't create it, so I'll, uh, uh, but I'll plagiarize it, is an organization has to be fit for the purpose. I would say fit for the context. In a, in a world that doesn't change, you don't have to change your organizational structure. You can you can continue to do what you've always done and you'll you'll be successful. But when the context as your introduction was so good is changing in all in all forms, uh, markets, opportunities, demographics, technology, then you got to change. And if you don't change, you die. You're you, you wither and and the fact is most organizations don't survive. Even the large ones um in the United States, we had the Fortune 500 started in, I think, 1955 or 56. Now, 70 years later, of those 500 largest firms, these are the big ones. These are not the simple ones. Uh, 50 still exist. Huh. That's a 90% failure rate. And the argument is that it's only going to get faster. So to your point, if an organization doesn't change as fast as the world around it, fit for context, then it's not going to survive. And you see that almost every day. You, uh, you see Blockbuster, you see retail stores across the board because of uh, technology uh, going out. Uh, Toys R Us, uh, just 
there's lists of stores you can you can concept. So one of the things Arthur Young, my colleague and I said is, how do you then create a, a reinvented or new organization or a new organizational species to respond to those environmental demands? And that's that's the uh, well, in some cases, multi million dollar question. We hope we hope it's hundred thousand uh, book sales question. <laughs> I, I, I joke about that, but you know, everyone. I've been hearing about the rapid pace of technology since I was a little kid, you know, and the projections for how quickly computer processors would change. And of course, we the reality hasn't kept up with their projections, but it's still blistering fast. And you wonder at some point, can humans even stay abreast of all this? Can they even stay current? Um, you know, it's interesting. The there's a dilemma will you know the human being can beat a chess player or can win it uh, a lot of games the the pace is continually changing you know, moore's law i can't remember exactly what it is but the 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 capacity to change doubles every 18 months has continued um computing technology is changing what what computing technology is really about is accessing and using information i i love simplicity my my graduate work decades ago was in what's called numerical taxonomy, which is uh, statistics and taxonomy is simplification. So I like relatively simple uh, conclusions to complex problems. And, and the simple message about all this technology, Internet of Things, clouds, blockchain, is all of the technology does is provide access to information in a different way. The metaphor for me, and then I'll transfer back to organizations, is... Uh, a lot of people have an analog watch. It has the hands that go around, and sometimes you have to describe what the analog watch is. But increasingly, and it tells time. It does a great job. It's not as precise, but it tells time, a Rolex watch or an Omega watch. But people are now buying a digital watch. Uh, and I don't know what kind of watch you wear. I've not uh, uh, seen that. But a digital watch is an iWatch or some other digital watch. All that a digital watch does is provide you 10 times, 100 times access to information. It's a communication mm -hmm. device. It's a health device. It's a sleeping device. It's a reminder device. And, and that's what digital does. Instead of having analog thoughts, you have a, an abundance of information to make decisions. That's what's happening to organizations is in this world of change, often driven by digital information, how does the organization respond? And so I make two other points, and I don't like to go too long without questions, but <laughs> a lot of people have been experimenting with this. Uh, the, the negative hierarchy, the Dilbert cartoons, the office, making fun of hierarchy. And in the world I live in, 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 in ideas and literature and research, there's been a lot of experiments about what this organization looks like. How do you do post-hierarchy? And, and there's a lot of fancy names, uh, holacracy, exponential organization, amoeba organization, <laughs> uh, anti-hierarchy. And so what Arthur and I wanted to do is say, how do you take those experiments and put those into a systematic framework that explains what this emerging organization looks like in, a, in an integrated way? So it's not a piece of the puzzle. It's, a, it's an entire framework and logic of the puzzle. And that's what we were trying to do in some of our research. So you're looking to create the calculus for change. 
I I put one other word in front of that that calculates for organizational change. That <laughs> that it's not just. By the way, I believe organizations are one of the most powerful impacts in the last fifty years in society. Look mm. around the clothes you wear, the the bed you slept in, the house you live in, the food you eat. Every one of the things where I sit in my office today, the television that's on, the fireplace that's running, the books on my shelves, they're brought to you by an organization. I mean, without an organization, I don't have any of those things. Organizations have been probably the greatest source of good and and performance in society in the last 50 years because we've moved from individuals living in farms and isolated places, you eat what you kill, um, to, to literally creating organizations that have shaped our lives. It's just amazing. And yet those organizations don't survive if they don't change. And that's, that's kind of an abstract philosophical question, but it's my, my passion for how do you create and adapt an organization that enables it to succeed in the marketplace in which we, in the changing marketplace where we live. What are some of the more interesting, at least, and perhaps successful strategies that you've seen for how companies address such change? Again, one of the things that's cool is when we, we looked at this, we saw a metaphor. And let me use a metaphor and then, and then answer the question. And it's not a metaphor. It's a true story. About two years ago, um, I came across this incredible story of a woman's on the beach with her mother and two of her sons, eight and ten. The boys go out in the water. They're caught in a major riptide, and it's pulling them out into the ocean. The mother jumps in. She's in the riptide. The grandmother jumps in. Five other people jump in. And now you've got nine people caught in a riptide, and they're being pulled into the ocean. Uh, I, I'm not a swimmer, but I've heard being in a riptide is frightening beyond belief. Yes, Michael Phillips, the best swimmer in the history of the world, I think 20 gold medals, couldn't save him. What happened in this story, and it's on video, is uh, 80 people or 88 people joined arms and they formed a 300-meter human chain and they saved the nine people. Wow. What a cool story. When you look at that, that's the organization of the future. The riptide in, is not what's wrong, it's what's right. What's the market opportunity because of this incredible digital world we live in and changing world? How do you put together 300 pe or 80 people and go after that and respond in two to three minutes? And how do you systematically do that? And so we wanted to look at that and say, okay, I can see a small company in somebody's garage doing that or basement, but how do you do that at scale? So Arthur and I looked at where companies are doing that today at scale. And we picked eight companies. We could have picked others. Uh, we picked some from China, where the most innovative organization work is going on. Alibaba, Tencent, Huawei, JD.com. In the U.S., it's Facebook, it's uh, Apple, it's Amazon, it's Google. And then we dove deep into those companies and said, what is it they do? The companies we pick, the eight are average 20 years old, so they're not old by organizational standards. Uh, their average market value is 450 billion U.S., which is just unheard of. I mean, now some of that is because you have Amazon in there and Google in there, but uh, Tencent, Alibaba. Um, and so Arthur and I said, what do they do? And so we dove deep into those eight iconic companies. This is not a thousand person study. We've done that before. We discovered 
six things, and I won't bore you with the six, but I'll go very quickly. Number one, they predicted and anticipated the environment. They were outside in and everything they thought about. Number two, their strategy was about agility, not planning. It wasn't, let's do an away day with strengths, weaknesses, opportunities. It was, how do we anticipate and change? How do we do strategic agility? Number three, they organized around capabilities. They they built the capacity to innovate, to change, to serve customers, and to get information. Number four, they had a different structure. They were not organized by hierarchy or divisions or matrices. They were organized around platforms of information and skills and then cells that blew off, that grew off of those platforms. Number five, they had incredibly good governance to discipline and make those things happen. That's the man talent and performance management kind of stuff. And number six, they had leaders who were iconic in terms of change and adaptability. Now that's, I just gave you far too much, but remember <laughs> what I said, we didn't want one piece of the puzzle. There's some great work out there on teamwork, the uh, scrum team to be agile. There's some great work on strategic agility. You color your ocean blue or pink or purple or whatever color you make it. There's some great work out there on structure. You form a platform. We wanted to provide an integrated solution to uh, to those organizations that we dove deep into. Yeah, and I mean, thank you for going over that. It's it's not boring from I'm sure from our listeners and nor is it from mine. Um, that's kind of what's so important about this is that you'll if you go out there for looking for solutions. Um, let's say you're you've got the green light to spend some money uh, as an HR professional, and you need to solve X. You, know, you need better talent or more talent. You know, the approach is often find a solution, buy the solution, enact the solution. But that's just one piece of the puzzle. And these these things have to be a real solution is holistic and takes into account all of the variables. You know, what the marketplace is doing, what the talent is available. Should you go remote? Should you use a digital solution? Should you how many of those interviews should you do in person? How should you conduct them? How should you onboard them? Like all these things, if you don't think of every aspect or be prepared for new and emerging aspects, uh, you could you could buy the best solution in the world and fall flat on your face. Absolutely. And I mean, it's it's not complicated. It's like uh, go to the grocery store, buy flour, buy sugar, buy, buy milk. Um, and you come home and you got all the ingredients sitting on your counter and you're going, uh, what am I eating today? And, <laughs> and it's not the ingredients that make it good. It's the menu that puts those ingredients together so that you get a great chocolate chip cookie, which, uh, I've eaten too many of. So, <laughs> so where, where do you find HR, uh, in this, in this, uh, network I, of ideas? Oh, and, and this is my passion. I, uh, I didn't come to HR because I love HR. I, I, you and I talked briefly. Most people don't wake up at age nine or 10 and say, oh, I want to be an HR person. Um, but, but what I found is the following question, and this is where I find HR. It's changing the assumption of HR. Uh, when I do talks, and I'm, I do quite a few talks to HR groups, I start lately with the question, what's the most important thing that HR people and our business leaders can give an employee? What's the most important thing HR can give an employee? And I get great answers, vision, purpose, relationships, opportunity, community, leadership. 
And my comment is in the American game show family feud with a hundred families, all of those add up to 40 points. Um, and we were one of the hundred families for about 20 years. So it's cool. Here's the answer for me. And it's a different assumption for HR. The most important thing HR can give an employee or a business leader can give an employee is an organization that wins in the marketplace. Mm. You know, unless and until you win in the marketplace, you rescue those nine people caught in a riptide. Unless you win in that marketplace, there is no vision. There is no employment. There is no opportunity. There is no community. And so what I'm intrigued with is how do you, we're intrigued with, Arthur and I, how do you create organizations that consistently win in dynamic and changing marketplaces? And when HR gets that assumption in their head, a couple of things happen. One, it's not just about talent. Um, I'm pushing this, and I hope it's not Sisyphus pushing a rock up a hill that falls down. In the research we did with 30,000 people, now this is the other kind of research, it's big databases, we did a test. What drives business results winning in the marketplace more? Is it individual talent, the skills of the people, or is it organizational capabilities and systems? Our research showed four to one organization. And so why are we studying and reinventing organizations? It's because if you create the organizational system that can bring you a television, a book, food, driving, if you create that system, you're going to have a better chance of winning. And that's why this book is not, I mean, talent is a piece of that system, but it's not just about talent. HR, we become the architects, we become the anthropologists, we become the thought leaders. How do you create an organization that wins in the marketplace over time? And, and it's not magic. It's not super magic. It's building that embedded organization through the things I talked about that help us win. Um, would it be okay to give an example? Cause this abstract can be concrete. Absolutely. Um, our son finished his PhD a few years ago and he had four kids and we said, Mike, Joe, what do you want for a gift? And he said, we want to go to Disney. And we went, okay, we'll go to Disney. He has four kids under eight at the time. Well, as soon as he heard that, our daughter with two kids said, we're going to Disney with you. And our other daughter said, we're going to Disney. So we showed up at Disney with 16 people. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm not sure we've met in person, Jim, but I'm large, I'm heavy, I sweat. We're standing in Florida with 16 people. Oh, and they wanted to stay on property to have the whole experience, which basically means you pay a premium. Oh, yeah. And I'm kind of grumpy. I'm sweaty. We got 16 <laughs> people, eight kids under eight, uh, some in diapers. And this woman comes up all Disney happy. Welcome. This is the happiest place on earth. And I'm going, <laughs> maybe for you, but it's not for me right now. I'm, I was going to buy a car this year, but I'm not. I'm now coming to Disney. And and I'm sweaty and it's hot and I'm kind of grouchy. Okay. Going through the day. And then we go in to see Cinderella and Snow White. Mm -hmm. And we, because we're a big group, we have a little private room and Cinderella walks in and our granddaughters who are eight and seven and seven, they're mesmerized and they stare at her and they turn around and they say, grandpa, she's beautiful and she's real. And then they stop for a minute, look at her, and then look at me and say, Grandpa, thank you. I mm. love you. And I go, ah, crap. We're going to come back. Um, because <laughs> now, and, and we did. I mean, we just, uh, 
did a summer cruise on Disney with now 18 people uh, with two new kids. And, and the same thing happens. Now I'm going too long into the story. Look at what's happened in that case. Disney has somehow created magic, not only for that daughter who's eight or 10 years old now because of Frozen 2, which is just coming out, <laughs> but she's got that granddaughter to turn to her grandfather and grandmother. Oh, we love you. And we're going to come back. Um, that's not an accident. That's not no, an accident. No, it is not. <laughs> the HR folks at Disney have done dozens and dozens of things, hiring, training, building capability, communication, so that that gets replicated thousands of times a day with customers at Disney who walk away, pay a premium, and have a phenomenal experience. That's the organization that is more than any one Disney person it's the system that creates that. So, so we experience that when we go to the theme park. We experience on the boat. This weekend, I'm going to take my, uh, our, my granddaughters who live near me to see Frozen 2. And they're going to walk out of this Frozen 2, which is the current show, and that kind of dates our, our podcast. But they're going to walk out of there, I'm sure, and say, oh, Grandpa, we love you again. And I, and I go, thank you, Disney. <laughs> for creating an organization that allows me to bond with my granddaughters who are now 10 years old and under. Um, but Jim, isn't that cool? That's what HR does. Behind the scenes, building that system and that platform on which Disney creates incredible guest experiences. That's a long story, and I'm sorry, but it sort of anchors it. No, I think Disney's an, an, an excellent example of a company that's doing it right because there are all of these people out there that hate on Disney because of how successful they are. You know, Disney Plus just released. Uh, we we bought it. Um, I'm going to be watching Frozen for the first time with my daughter this week. Um, how old? How old's your daughter? She's two and a half. Oh, and, so cool. Uh, yeah, I'm. You know, I was gonna. I'm waiting for everyone to have time so we can do it all together. When I was gonna before I had kids, I was like, if I ever have one, I'm not gonna make them a Disney princess. You know, um, I don't want to I don't want to do that. But you just you know, we've been to Disney World, not with her yet, but there they have some capability to make the magic, as you say, very real, even for adults. And why wouldn't I want to leverage that to give my kid a great experience? You know, and that's something that I'm sure at least I hope that those people in HR understand that they're creating because it can be a cold, dark place for, for HR sometimes if you're not seeing the results of your hard work and if you're, you know, if you're not getting the love from your, uh, from your employees and you, you find yourself trapped a lot of times between your employees and your leaders, right? Absolutely. I, and I think the way out of the trap is listen to two guys, I'm older, you're younger, say, I want to give, I want to have a great experience with my children who we often care about. And it doesn't have to be children. It could be adults. Disney's HR folks. And I've met them. They are so thoughtful. They think about that issue. They don't just think about leader employee as a linear thing. They have a triad. They'll put customer or guest and say, what can we do between leaders and employees to give the guests a good experience? We can get Cinderella or Snow White or Frozen. I don't know what her name is. Anna, I guess. We can find that character. We can define it. We can communicate. Anyway, I, I'm just reaffirming. 
and, and challenging that HR is not just about the employee leader, but it's about bringing the customer or the guest into that relationship so that, so that what we do inside is connected outside. Is this a part of what you refer to as a market oriented ecosystem? Yeah, we, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's, as I said, holacracy, exponential amoeba team of teams network, everybody's got a cute name. And so our publisher said, can you come up with a cute name? And my <laughs> counterpoint was no, because I can't out cute what's out there. Um, and so market oriented, focused on customers, ecosystem, it's a network of relationships that works. It's not a hierarchy. And so we said to our publisher, let's be counterintuitive. Let's get a clunky, um, not very fancy phrase, but it's authentic. It's a market oriented. It's what does the customer want outside in ecosystem? It's a network of relationships that allow us to be successful. So that's where the phrase came from. <laughs> and, um, and who knows? It may be wrong. I mean, maybe we should have discovered we worked hard to find a new cute little name. Um, and we decided a lot of those names are really good. Amoeba. That's the mm. teamwork that you do. Holacracy. That's the governance that you do around empowerment, decision making. None of those names captured the whole puzzle. They were all pieces of the puzzle. And I mean, we did a book called Boundaryless Organization a long time ago. That's the structure. We wanted a, 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 a metaphor that captured the whole puzzle, not just the pieces. With an approach to organizational structure being, you know, more agile, at least that's what people are understanding now. That seems to me, I can just imagine our audience sitting in their, de you know, sitting in their offices with a million th billion things to do saying, oh no, uh, my, my leader is going to hear this and now I'm going to have to do five more things. How, how do you help situate HR in the middle of all this in a way that doesn't just absolutely overwhelm them? Um, that is such a tough question because I often feel overwhelmed as well. Um, <laughs> What I like, and I said in my academic studies, is taxonomy or simplicity in the face of complexity. So I would, I would say to that HR person, uh, take a deep breath. Um, this is prioritization. It's not a new idea. It's, it, we used to call it time management. Start by saying, outside in, look at the list of things on my to-do list, my little checklist of all the items I have to do today, which are going to add the most value to customers of the company. Not the employees, not the leaders, but customers outside. So prioritize around outside customers. Which ones of those are, should I just simply satisfy? This is a cool term that would be a whole nother podcast. It's not satisfy, but satisfice. It won a Nobel Prize by a man named Herbert Simon. And it said, there's a lot of HR work that you just get done. Don't be the best in the world at administration of benefits. Just get it done. Don't be the best in the world at 401k, just get it done. And that's where technology becomes an incredible enabler. So number one, outside in, what should I do? Number two, satisfice. And then number three, focus, given those two, on the two or three things that you think sitting at your desk as an HR person, if I were coaching you, will have the biggest impact uh, in a near term that I could do. Is that having a discussion of culture? Is that setting criteria for leadership? Is that managing careers? 
is it retaining an employee who just updated? <laughs> this is where technology is fun. They find that when employees update their LinkedIn site, they're more mm. likely to be looking for a job. So here's my 20% of, of really talented employees. Uh, three of them just updated their LinkedIn site. I got a ding. Boy, that's a pretty big priority. I better give them a call. I better find out with them and their leader what's going on. So number one, outside in. Number two, satisfy. Get the administrative done efficiently. And number three, really focus on a couple of things that you think will create value. Let me ask you a little bit about leadership and specifically troubled leadership. Um, it's a topic we I try and tackle with a lot of my guests because a lot of, you know, there's been this talk about getting HR at the table. And I think a lot of organizations, a lot of intelligent organizations have succeeded in doing so. But that still leaves a, a large number of organizations out there where HR is not really at the table and might just be, uh, what would you call it, a f sort of a filter you know, for leadership or a buffer where leader says, the leader says, we're going to do blah, 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 translate that to something that the employees can understand, you know, and yet these people have to be successful and they have to, you know, they, they're managing quite a bit of the organization, whether the leaders understand that or not. Well, what advice do you have for someone like that in making, I want to say force their leaders to listen, but, uh, you know, just getting sort of getting on the radar. I'm going to answer that in a funny way to start, but I'll get to the answer. Uh, you have a two and a half year old. We have three kids and grandkids. One of the things I've learned is I parent the way I was parented um, for better, or for worse. Um, our kids are parenting the way we parented them. Now we tweak it. A lot of leaders lead the way they were led. My early mentors, which could have been my parents in my home. It could have been my early leaders in a company. I lead the way I was led, because that's the DNA. That's the heritage that I've experienced. In that line, I often see 20, 60, 20, 20%, 20 and these are crude numbers, of leaders are leading with exceptional sensitivity to people, organization issues. It's part of their DNA. They were led by leaders who had that sensitivity. 20% just don't get it. They weren't led that way. They've never seen it. They've never experienced it. And then 60% are probably in the middle. I'm becoming increasingly cynical as, as a coach. The 20% the who are good, my job as an HR coach is to stand side by side them, support them, and get out of their way. The 20% who are bad, to be honest, some of them just aren't going to change. And so when you say, I start with the 20% who are really not very good, I feel bad. They're probably not going to change a ton. That's now they can change some. I like to go to the 60. So if I'm an HR person working with the top 20%, don't tell anyone because everybody's going to want to take my job and work with that good leader. If I'm working <laughs> with the bottom 20%, uh, again, don't tell anyone, but just recognize sometimes it's an uphill battle. I was coaching a uh, head of HR who was a good friend and the founder of the company was in his late 80s. The son was in charge of the company in his 60s. The daughters were the 40-year-olds. And there are three generations of leadership who were more traditional, autocratic, don't listen, command and control. And my <laughs> friend who was the head of HR said, Dave, what do I do? And I said, Roger, pray for death. <laughs> and uh, 
by the way, and somebody takes that out of context. I, it's a joke, but you got three generations of family business. Yeah, it's going to be really hard, Roger, to see that DNA change. And so, if you're in that bottom fifteen or twenty percent, be patient, but don't don't be too optimistic. And uh, I love to look at the sixty percent. How do we help those leaders? recognize that the way they treat their people and their organization becomes a, a clarion call, becomes a brand, if you will, of how they're going to be seen in the marketplace. And it will lead to their business success. So that's not a very common, uh, kind answer. Uh, I hope I've improved on how my parents parented me, and I hope our kids improve on how we parented them. But there still is a pattern uh, that some leaders get and some leaders don't. No, I, I appreciate the the direct answer because, you know, when we particularly when we talk about hostile workplaces um, with professionals, I always find that there's people that fall on one side or the other of just quit or show them, you know, show them the business case for for improving things. Um, so you're officially the first person that answered in the middle of not telling them to quit but uh, managing their expectations a little bit. So I, I certainly appreciate that. <laughs> I, I had a friend who was, went into one of those hostile places and found it wasn't good, and he quit as a, a senior HR person. And he ended up spending a year finding another job. And, <laughs> and some of this is an IQ of zero. I mean, duh, it's better to find a job from a job. And, but, mm. and then the other thing is do what you can do. I mean... Right. There was an American president named Abraham Lincoln who who had a lot of uh, common sense. And he said back in the 1850s, 150 years ago, if you're plowing a field and there's a giant oak tree in the middle of it so that your row is not straight, don't spend a month getting rid of the oak tree. Just plow around it. And 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 I think sometimes that same message is, you know, if you've got a leader in the company who's not sensitive to what you're trying to do and they've got the DNA and the heritage, they can't plow around it. Don't don't get into don't quit and not find a job. That's just unfortunate and tragic. Don't try to change their DNA and heritage. It just may be hard to do. Plow around it. Go find leaders who will support and who will be allies and who who you can either the top 20 percent or the middle 60 who you can move. So kind of pragmatic advice well dave i think that uh those are great answers and i really appreciate you uh you taking the time to join me today jim what a delightful call it feels like uh we're sitting around uh jerry seinfeld has that new show online a cup of coffee in a car uh, or whatever it is i love I that show i i think it's cute it sounds like we just did that only it's uh it's a, a soft drink or a cup of coffee uh, on online, not in a car. So thank you. What a delightful conversation. The, the feeling's mutual. Um, listeners, we are always interested in suggestions you might have for what HR Works should cover next. Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at HR Works Podcast or with any thoughts or concerns you have about the podcast in general, or just to say hi. Thanks for listening. This is Jim Davis with HR Works. <laughs>